This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Today, we explore the collective memory in Ghana of the transatlantic slave trade. With me is PhD student Phyllis Che Mensa. In general, about 28 million people were captured on the continent of Africa. Um, and out of that, about 14 million people got on ships out of the 28 million. And then out of that, about 7 million were able to reach their final destinations. And these numbers were from West Central Africa, which is present-day Congo, the Republic of Congo, and then Congo DRC and Angola. That's actually where slavery actually started. Phyllis Che Mensa is a doctoral candidate in educational leadership, culture, and curriculum at Miami University in Ohio. She also works on Fresh Ed as the resource list manager. Her new article is entitled Collective Memory and the Transatlantic Slave Trade, Remembering Education Towards New Diasporic Connections, which was published in Curriculum Inquiry. Phyllis J. Mensa, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you, Will. Thanks for having me. It's quite funny because you actually work on Fresh Ed. This is, I think, the first time that I'm interviewing a Fresh Ed team member. So thanks for being the first one to join. We are actually here to talk about some of your new work. Um, you have a new article out. And I think by way of introduction, it might be valuable to think a little bit about the history of Ghana and how Ghana was connected to the slave trade. So for listeners who might not know too much about that history, could you give us a little background? Sure. So Ghana is a country in West Africa. It's along the coast of Western Africa. And before it became Ghana, which was after its independence in 1957, it was called Gold Coast. And this name was given by Europeans who came to trade along that coast because it had lots of gold in the hinterland. Before the Europeans came and called it Gold Coast, it was basically just a lot of ethnic groups that had settled in the area and working to consolidate their individual states. So just like it happened in Europe and other parts of the world, there were several groups. You had the Asantis, the Dangerous, other ethnic groups in the northern part who were basically trying to form their states. And also at this time, before the Europeans ever came, there was a trans-Saharan trade, which was going on in the Sahara part of Africa. So modern day Mali, Burkina Faso, moving into Sudan. And so the trans-Saharan trade, the Arab traders and people from the Mediterranean would come over there to buy gold and salt and other things. And so part of the consolidation of the states in the Gold Coast was also so that some of the states could be able to control the trade routes along that line. And so when the Europeans came to the Gold Coast somewhere in the 1500s or the late 1400s, some of the states had already been established, some hadn't been established. And so when the, the Europeans also came and then they were also interest, interested in trading in, originally it wasn't about the slave trade, they were also buying gold and other things. But then it evolved somehow into to buying people. And so it became the focus moved to the coast, right? And so some of the states in Ghana also wanted to control the states, the routes down there, which resulted in lots of wars. And during those wars, they would sometimes capture people. Before the Europeans came, there was indigenous slave going on, but it wasn't necessarily for economic purposes. One, it was for them to be able to build up their armies, to get labor for their farms and all of that. But 
that when the Europeans came and made it a whole economic venture, then it became more prominent from the 1500s. How long did that European slave trade continue to impact Ghana? Like, do we have any estimate of sort of how many years that slave trade occurred? And do we have any sense of how many people from Ghana were forcibly removed? Do we have that data? In terms of the duration, it's believed that the first Europeans came to Ghana in the 14, late 1400s and then started building castles along the coast to trade and things and then later be- began, began to store humans, I guess. So from the say early 1500s to the late 1800s when the British itself abolished slavery in England. The British did abolish it in 1807, the first time it did. But in Ghana itself, even after the abolition, it went on, at least the indigenous part of it went on until the early 1900s when Ghana became like a formal colony of England. And so in terms of the people, generally we don't necessarily know But we do know that in general, about 28 million people were captured on the continent of Africa, not just from Ghana. Um, And out of that, about 14 million people got on ships out of the 28 million. And then out of that, about 7 million were able to reach their final destinations. And these numbers were from West Central Africa, which is present-day Congo, the Republic of Congo, and then Congo DRC and Angola. That's actually where slave trade actually started. And then the Gold Coast was Ghana and then parts of Cote d'Ivoire. And then we had the Bight of Benin, which is present-day Togo, Benin, and Western Nigeria. The Bight of Biafra, which is Eastern Nigeria, Cameroon, Equatorial Guinea, and Gabon. And then the Senegambia region, which is Senegal and Gambia. There is Liberia and as well. There's Guinea-Bissau, Guinea-Sierra Leone, and then a little bit of Mozambique and Madagascar, which is like the Indian Ocean, southeastern mm. part of Africa. But the majority of them came from Western Africa. It's just amazing how the slave trade impacted the continent of Africa, basically, with all those different countries that you're mentioning now. Is there a large diaspora today of Ghanaians who sort of live in former colonies where they were sort of sold to and you know their ancestors were enslaved i mean is there a large history of ghanaian diaspora i believe so interestingly and lots of the people who were shipped from the coast of ghana came from the hinterland and northern parts Mm. so from mali burkina there were some say present-day ghanaians who were in there but the majority of them were moved southwards from the Mm. northern parts and so even though there's a lot of news about Ghana being their home, I believe a lot of them weren't actually from present-day Ghana. As to the actual number, we, we wouldn't necessarily know. They were in transit from the north. And so I believe there are some who were from Ghana, but as to the actual number, we wouldn't be able to know, mm. except for the people who've been able to trace. Your article really looks at how this slave trade is remembered today by Ghanaian youth, basically. And so how is it remembered? How do people remember and think and talk about this massive slave trade that existed, as you said, across so many different countries and for hundreds of years? 
so my article rather would probably come from how it is not remembered rather than how it is remembered by the youth because in my article I'm trying to argue that there is like two sides of it where the state is actively remembering it and when I say remember it's like outward in terms of remembering it towards the diaspora rather than inward so the state at the state level there is a lot of activities trying to draw the diaspora remembering the slave trade as part of the diaspora history but for the youth which I'm part of especially for the youth who don't live along the coast because along the coast is where a lot of the you know, events celebrating the diaspora happen. So for somebody like me who doesn't live near the coast, who lives in the hinterland, it's basically what we learn at school in social studies curriculum. At the basic level, which is by US standard, that would be grade nine-ish, because that is basically where we'll be able to talk about it. At the, between grade 10 and 12, it's, we do social studies, but we don't do anything related to. When you think back on perhaps your own education, but also the research you did looking at schools, how do schools approach the issue of the slave trade? What do we find? I would say in the educational curriculum or the social studies curriculum, we do remember it as something that happened a long time ago and something we have moved on. So when you look at the curriculum, one with the people I talked to, there was a show, Roots. They showed it on TV. I watched it at the time. I was probably in grade school. I can't remember. I was very young. And that was the first time I witnessed or remembered that. But that was a long time ago. That doesn't show anymore and so a lot of the people I talked to they would say that I knew it from the roots that's how I knew about slavery roots was shown in my grade school too in America I think it was a long time ago but beyond that they would say a few of them mentioned that their teacher would tell them but when I look at the curriculum specifically it only highlights the transatlantic slave trade as one of the many things that came with Europeans coming to Ghana Mm -hmm. so it's not like a specific topic that we dedicate say one week to talk about it's just part of the colonialism units so why do you think that is i mean it's quite interesting to think that this hundreds of years of slavery which you know as you rightly point out is you know part of colonialism but why doesn't it receive more attention in the curriculum do you think so some have argued for several reasons well one post-colonial ghana there was an attempt by all the leaders to create like an image of national unity so we are united we are one nation we are not divided and slavery is a very sensitive topic on its own especially because so in Ghana we have a saying in the local language it says you you don't talk about somebody's past that's close kind of there's a saying like that so you don't talk about somebody's past even those who have done scholarship on slavery you find that it's difficult for people to talk openly about it because they are scared that it's going to disrupt the unity that we have. And so that's one reason that we don't want to talk about it, to build the image of one united country. Another reason I believe would also be that states, I guess states are trying to create a narrative for people to be able to come to Ghana Mm -hmm. without people feeling bad about it, I guess. So these are people who are far removed from us. They were enslaved at some point and they are coming back home. Let's welcome them. But don't let us talk too deeply about it because it's sensitive. So the state narrative, in a way, tries to minimize sensitive topics and, and sort of emphasize and promote some 
how these positive conceptions of national identity. But of course, that is, as you said, that's the state conception. What do everyday people think, right? I mean, it must be different in a way. There, there must be more sort of known about the slave trade other than what is absent in the school textbooks. In terms of the everyday language, personally, I do not remember ever mm. talking about slavery. Wow. Besides the things I've read about, I do not remember everyday conversations about enslaved people. But there's literature that have gone into some of the communities that experienced, that really experienced, that we can trace to now. And a lot of it is, we don't want to talk about it. So those of us who are victimized, we don't want to bring that back. But actually, there was an article I did read that was like so i think it was talking about a community in the anglo part of ghana it's in the eastern part of ghana and it's like the people whose ancestors were part where the merchants sullen people were more outspoken about it versus the people who were victimized by it and so like everyday language it doesn't even though people the older people some people know and can trace it's more like let's just massage this and so why do you think that is i mean does it have to do something with just being traumatized and you know not wanting to focus in on something so traumatic in the past and you know i think people do that with emotion you know any emotional negative emotion people might want to just sort of gloss over it and not actually think too much about it that has been my argument that for the older community or the older members of the community i believe that it's part of the trauma right no one to relive it but for some of us young ones who don't even know much about it i don't know if i would call it trauma in my article i'm calling it like amnesia because we mm. don't know for the young population some know but a lot of us just know the diaspora on TV. TV, who we see doing sports, doing entertainment, entertaining us, you know, we see them in the larger light of they being from a Western superpower, right? It's just a distant memory that for many of us who are younger, it's not something you're trying to protect. We just don't know a lot about it to care about, I would say. What was your journey to learn about it, learn about the slave trade, learn about the history of Ghana and the slave trade? How did you, in a sense, overcome the amnesia that you're talking about um yeah so when i i would say when i moved to the u.s so thankfully for me because i'm in the social sciences i came across things that made me read a, a bit about it so when i came to the u.s i went to a church in an african-american community mm. and then they had um it's a catholic church so ideally you would see like a sculpture of Mary but this one was black and then it had an African print on so that got me reflecting and then I went to another church and they were singing spiritual songs and in that moment I it dawned on me that this is the first time I'm actually connecting with this group beyond those I'm seeing on TV so that got me really interested in reading more about the African-American experience here, reading more about the history and what they've been through here. And then I started like, how come I had to come here to read all experience the trauma you've been through? It sounds like it's a bit unusual in a way. I mean, it sounds like the amnesia is probably more commonplace. Um, you know, the youth simply just because they go to schools where the curriculum sort of absents these ideas and they might have 
parents and grandparents who simply don't want to talk openly about these ideas. It sounds like a lot of the youth might never have the opportunity like you did to sort of begin exploring what that history means and, you know, to you, but also to your country. That's, that's absolutely correct, um, I would say. And so, yeah, in my article also, I talk about how because Ghana has a lot of these castles, a lot of people in the diaspora come would come visit, right? And then, so there was, I can't remember what, but one of the scholars was like, when she interviewed the people in Ghana, they would be like, why do they always come and cry? So for them, it's like, you live in America, you, you are well off relatively. Why would you still dwell on this? This thing that mm. happened so many years ago. So absolutely, you are right in saying that. So that's interesting. So like when you go back to Ghana to visit, because you live in America doing your PhD and you'll soon do your postdoc in America, you know, presumably you must go back to visit family and friends. What is that like? I mean, do people ask you about your research? And is it hard for people to understand what you are doing? So I haven't been since I wrote this paper. So personally, I have never been to any of the slaveholding castles. Mm. It's something I'm going to do right when I go back to Ghana. <laughs> so it's on my list of things mm. I want to do. But where I'm from is in the hinterland. Nobody talks about it. I would be interested to see how people on the coast, so people in Cape Coast, in Accra or Takwadi, where these castles are located, how we talk about it. Mm. Um, it would be interesting. Would you say that your understanding of Ghana has changed, you know, since you wrote this paper and you've sort of reflected on collective memory and historical memory and, and forgetting and amnesia? I would say yes, because so in 2019, Ghana has had several programs since independence. So Dr. Kwame Nkrumah was a big advocate of Pan-Africanism and mm. he would call all the diasporans to come back home to rebuild, right? And since then, there has been several other projects like the Joseph Project and Panafest, sorry, and other events to bring people home. Just in 2019, to commemorate the 400th year of enslaved people being on American soil, there was a whole year-long celebration calling diasporans to come home. However... I've been looking at these things more critically now, going on their websites, reading the languages that are framing these projects and these programs that are calling people in the diaspora to come back home and analyzing the politics of it, the neoliberal discourses that are coming up. What does that mean then? So, you know, to say that you see some neoliberal discourses, so, you know, so what? What's the significance of that in your mind? So for me, I think we are still missing the mark of what it means for people in the diaspora to come back home even if we are not missing the mark in these campaigns or in the messages we put across it looks like we have made it more about the economic benefits we get than the healing we are going to give them when they come in. and wow. so yes so that's how i have envisioning this now I'm like yeah so it's all about tourism and they do have healing they have rituals that is aimed at you know pacifying them and all of that but the majority of it is all about move back, come build your businesses here. So the idea is it's like bring people, bring the diaspora back home to grow the Ghanaian economy, build your business. It's not about trying to sort of imagine what nationalism means by reflecting on this particular past and sort of coming to terms with it. 
Yeah, I was just saying, even asking them like what they would want in terms of, you know, the healing or these programs we are doing. It's more like we've imagined things for them. How can we help you heal beyond asking you to come? So what would you say if they could do it slightly differently and not focus so much on the sort of economic aspects, but focus, as you said, on the healing? What might that actually look like in your mind? Um, yes. So this is what I call like the critical collective remembering approach. And UNESCO, I believe, has been doing a lot of work. You know, it started the slave trade route, which is identifying specific locations beyond the coast that were significant to the trade. And they are trying to, you know, bring these locations out so that people could visit these and, you know, relive those moments. So in I just found that in 2022, it released a children's book called Being to an Isa Collection. And it's basically to tell the story of the transatlantic slave trade to children. But I am not sure if this book has made it into Ghanaian schools yet. <laughs> and so my recommendation would be so similar to what UNESCO has done with the collection, have addressed the slave trade to these children, helping them to understand how is it that the people came to be where they are now? What have they been through? How is that impacting us now and them? now. Like it should be something we learn about in the curriculum. My recommendation is also that so far, I mentioned before that so many countries along the West African coast that were impacted by this, but it's more like every country is doing their own thing to remember it instead of being a connection because people came from Mali and Burkina to Ghana, right? But we, we are in Ghana talking about the people who, who moved from Ghana without mm. interacting with the states in Burkina Faso and Mali to collectively decide how we can actually remember this to make it meaningful. Mm. I'm also recommending that, so in terms of the schools, one way to learn about this beyond test, because now most students have moved beyond test anyway, is um, making it interesting for them to learn about it, right? So through, you know, games, through projects that would let them explore their communities, you know, com which are the communities that resisted these? Which of the communities have histories about this? If we had students themselves excited about doing this kind of research through the school projects we give them, making them value this piece of history that would be helpful. And I'm also advocating that we should reduce the neoliberal, not reduce, but like it shouldn't be about the money. Mm. And we also talk about reparations. I don't think Ghana has ever ordered the states. So when we talk about reparations, it's only towards people who left. But a lot of the communities within Africa, mm. within Ghana, haven't really been compensated for for the things you've been through and so that is something we can think about too it's so fascinating because on the one hand you seem you know what you're sort of arguing is that the nation state of ghana has to sort of reimagine the way in which it teaches about the slave trade but at the same time since the slave trade was global and within the African continent impacted so many countries, we have to also think of it beyond the nation state. And once we do that, it actually, it sort of impacts the way we understand nationalism. There's this really clear tension that you're sort of bringing out. And it's almost like you can understand why political elites would shy away from doing this, because it's almost like doing one impacts the other. And so it's best to do neither. I agree. I think 
something else I also wanted to say was that, so I just found out that there's going to be like a Ghana National Museum on Slavery and Freedom, which they are mm. building in 2022. But I would say that it shouldn't just be something that people in the diaspora would come and see and go. It should be something that they would make us, we, the people in Ghana, interested in, in engaging mm. in, you know, just beyond the tourism aspect of it. It should be something that locals are excited about mm. wanting to engage it, wanting to discuss it further. So are you hopeful, you know, with that new museum being built and UNESCO's projects of sort of creating children's books and perhaps more sort of curricular content that may or may not put into the national curriculum, are you hopeful that some of these sort of discourses around trauma and the slave trade and collective memory will change? Like, is that, are you hopeful that that will actually happen in the near future? I would say I'm hopeful because a lot of the African diaspora groups have been advocating against some of these projects that they think are not necessarily are moving away from the points, the whole point of remembering. And so I'm hopeful that, especially for these groups, I don't think it would come from within, within the country, but I believe that if these groups that we are claiming to do these things for, which in a way is more like burdening them again because they've been through this and yeah, also asking them to help us think differently. But I do believe that that is where the change will come from. Phyllis Che Mensa, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It's just so nice to hear all about your research and best of luck finishing your PhD. Thank you, Will. Phyllis Che Mensa is a doctoral candidate at Miami University in Ohio. Her new article is Collective Memory and the Transatlantic Slave Trade, which was published in Curriculum Inquiry. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Head are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Head, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Head's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Akhtas, Obafemi Ungunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afroboteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Freshhead was created by Digital Primate. Freshhead is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the Shakdev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Freshhead by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.